Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. And today we are joined by Jacinta Shackleton, a marine biologist and underwater videographer who is currently working out of the Southern Great Barrier Reef. Jacinta, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're more than welcome. <laughs> uh, in today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing. But also, I want to explore how you harness social media and videography to complement the work that you do as a marine biologist, because that's an area that I think that you're kind of excelling at. You're kicking some goals in that area. So I want to pick your brain around that. But first, can you please introduce yourself to the podcast? So my name is Jacinta. I am a marine biologist. I studied uh, on the Gold Coast at Griffith University. I'm originally from Adelaide and now I'm living and working on the Great Barrier Reef. So my life is pretty great. (laughs) It's spent on a little island right at the bottom of the Great Barrier Reef called Lady Elliot. So I do usually 10 days on and then four days off and my days are spent swimming with turtles, looking at lots of beautiful coral. If I'm really lucky, we get to see sharks, dolphins, manta rays. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good gig. Yeah, sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> what was the inspiration behind becoming a marine biologist? Have you, like, always had a close relationship with the ocean? Was there, like, a particular moment in your life where it was, like, it clicked and you're like, this is what I want to do? Ever since I was little, I've always known that I wanted to work with animals in some way, whether it be a vet or doing zoology or marine biology. Uh, My family took me on a trip when I was about 12 years old to Green Island um, up off Cairns. And it's just the moment you get in the water and you see the coral and you see all the fish, it's just, for me, it was just life-changing. And I knew then that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life in whatever capacity it might be. And yeah, so it just, for me, it was just, it was just kind of like a click. And I think for a lot of people that probably happens to them as well. And I've just been really fortunate that I've actually been able to chase that dream and kind of achieve it so far. So you did have a click moment and that was, how old were you when that happened? I think I was 12 or 13. <laughs> yeah. On, on Green Island off of Cairns. Yeah. 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 I love hearing these stories. Like, cause like you said, there seems to be a moment or a compilation of moments where people can kind of go back to and like, like, this is where this interest stemmed from. For me, it was documentaries, wildlife documentaries with uh, David Annaborough, the yeah. great, the great man. So yeah, I love, I love hearing these stories. So that was your moment. Yeah. 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 And it kind of, it's coming to fruition now. Well, I think the other thing that happened on that trip was we were, we were leaving the island and we got back on the boat to go back to shore. And I saw that a tourist had taken one of the starfish off the reef and was trying to smuggle it back in his bag. And I was pretty young, but nothing was going to stop me from getting that starfish back in the water. So I went up to the staff. 
I told all the staff and they went over, got the starfish and put it back onto the reef. So I think, you know, I, I just would love to protect the reef for as long as I can. What an absolute legend. That's so cool. <laughs> Thanks. Speaking of the work that you're doing at the moment, can you um, yeah, expand on that and um, the work that you're currently doing in the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, so my job currently focuses on education. So we do a lot of presentations to the public. We'll take them out snorkeling on the reef. We'll take them for a little reef walk. And I think the whole goal is creating that experience for people. Like I want I want them to have that click moment where they realise just how incredible it is and they, they want to protect it and they want to care for it and that's what we're trying to, to create. So it's, it's fantastic when you see the interest that people take in what you're saying. You, you see them wanting to learn more, wanting to see as much as they possibly can and, and they end up absolutely loving the reef as much as I do. So the work that you're doing is you're fostering these experiences with the hope, I guess, that people like you have these click moments. I think that's a great way to think of it. Yeah. And you, I think especially when it's kids, when you see kids get in the water for the first time and their eyes just light up and they just get so excited, it's an incredible moment to be a part of. And I think that's where we need to start is with children and they're just going to carry on that passion and, and you know, that love for the environment. Can you talk about those experiences a little bit more? So are they kind of like snorkeling, scuba diving, and what do you do in that experience? What's your so role? we basically, the way the island works is you've got the island and then you've got the resort on the island and we work through the resort. So personally, I'll take people out on like a glass bottom boat tour. So we'll show them everything through the glass and we'll say, you know, look how incredible this is. This is the reef. This is healthy. This is what it looks like. We'll explain the structure. We'll talk about all the animals. And then we let them get in the water and, you know, see it firsthand and experience what it's like. We'll also do other tours which are more of a kind of full-on snorkel. So you go out into the deeper water. We're looking for bigger animals. We've had some incredible stuff happen on those. We've had, you know, whales, mums and calves. We've had dolphins. Um, we've had trains of manta rays. We've had all sorts of things. So it's, yeah, I've had people crying on my tours just from happiness about what they've been able to encounter and, and see and experience. That is so cool. Yeah. And you said trains <laughs> of manta rays. Is that the collective yeah. noun for, for mantas? So it's, they'll either be feeding or courting so one day we had this incredible tour and there was uh, lots of plankton in the water so that's what they feed on and we had a train of about I don't know 12 manta rays or just one after the other mouth wide open just trying to ingest all of that plankton and it was incredible. So the <laughs> the Great Barrier Reef can you talk a little bit about the current state of the Great Barrier Reef and how perhaps this that compares to the past? Yeah so Firstly, it's definitely um, not as healthy as it was in the past, that's for sure. Um, but this is actually a pretty hard question to answer. And I'm by no means an expert on the Great Barrier Reef. I'm learning more and more every day. But what I can tell you is basically how we summarise it is as a mixed bill of health. So what a lot of the surveys will do is divide the reef up into three sections. You've got northern, central and southern Great Barrier Reef. And they'll look at, you know, the health of the coral declines from different things. And they just basically, they found areas of growth right next to areas of decline. They've seen areas of no change at all. And 
it's very hard to say if it's, you know, I can't say it's healthy, I can't say it's sick, I can tell you that it's mixed. It, it varies across the entire reef. But one, I think, really negative thing that has happened is that in the media it's been portrayed that the reef is dead and that has been extremely detrimental to not only the tourism industry but also I guess the reef itself you know if we have less people coming to visit the reef it's we're going to be seeing less money um, being put into the care of the reef and it's obviously not true the Great Barrier Reef isn't dead Uh, yes it is under threat but it's not dead it's healthy in a lot of areas you've got you know beautiful areas of coral cover that are thriving and you can have those right next to areas that have experienced decline. So it's mixed. <laughs> That's an interesting point. So on the media, when they talk about, you know, because obviously the Great Barrier Reef, it's definitely portrayed as drastically un- unhealthy. And you, you use the word like dead. That's kind of how it's portrayed in a lot of ways. So you're saying that's detrimental because in my mind, and this is obviously goes to show how outsider's perspective may not always be accurate. But to me, it's like, okay, even if the Great Barrier Reef isn't as unhealthy as the media is, is um, conveying it, that can only be a good thing because you're exaggerating something and then more efforts will be, you know, more resources will be um, used to try and remedy that. But you're mm-hmm. saying from a tourism perspective, that decreases the flow of tourism in these areas and then that's one less revenue stream that can be used for conservation. Yeah. So if people think it's dead, what's the point of coming to see it? If they know Ooh. if they know that it's under threat and that it is declining, they might say, yep, I should go, I should see it before it's gone. But we really want to foster the idea of hope. We really want to get the idea and the message out there that it can be saved Mm-hmm. And it's worth saving, but it is going to take a lot of action. Have you found that there has been a decline then in tourism in these areas? Like obviously in the ones, the areas that you're currently working in? Um, I would say I've only been working out there for almost two years now, but we've actually seen, I'd say, an increase in numbers um, of tourists. We are like a you know a pretty small island, um, but we have a a pretty good number of people coming out um, each year to see the reef. And we've got Lady Musgrave right next to us as well, and I believe their their numbers are going pretty well too. But the main concentration of tourism on the reef is definitely up the north near Cairns. And, um, okay, so perhaps those areas are declining. So you said that there's it could be detrimental. Have you heard from kind of potentially operators up there that, yes, they are seeing a de- decline in, in tourism there? Not yet. I haven't really had an opportunity to speak to anyone up there, but it mm, would yeah. be interesting to find out. Okay. So with you, you work, you've been working there for a couple of years and you've noticed probably an, an increase. Have you, is there like a common theme? Like for me, obviously Lady Elliot Island, there's a lot of good social media content around that area. Do, do, do you find that that's a big driver perhaps for these people becoming aware of these places? Yeah, definitely. The the whole reason I found out about Lady Elliot was through social media. Same. Pretty much through you. (laughs) I was like, Ah. this place looks so cool. And then there's this, you know, this this one person that just keeps posting all this epic content. (laughs) And then, yeah, so that's how I stumbled upon the place. Yeah. Well, I was much the same. I saw videos of dolphins and manta rays and I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. And I was just, yeah, really fortunate to get my position out there. And I think 
you know, social media is such a big thing these days, um, Instagram being probably one of the main ones, and I think it's, you know, people will look for where they want to go on holidays on Instagram, see those photos and videos, and it can be a really big driver for, for tourism. Definitely. I can definitely mm-hmm. see that being a thing. And that's only going to increase. Like yeah. social media isn't just got to automatically or suddenly just dip in uh, popularity. Mm. Hence why I'm so big on social media. Anyways, right, yeah. next question. <laughs> what are the major threats to the or what are some of the major threats to the Great Barrier Reef? I'm going to start this off with climate change. So that is number one, the biggest threat that the reef is currently facing. So natural climate change is or I guess was happening at a rate that the environment could adapt to. Human accelerated climate change is happening at a rate that the ecosystem cannot adapt to. So the concern now is will the reef be able to cope? Will it be able to recover? And climate change is going to cause, you know, a number of problems. So you've got things like rising uh, sea water temperature. So that will cause problems with levels of CO2, ocean acidification. We've got problems with uh, water quality, crown of thorns. That's a big threat to the reef. We actually have an outbreak that's occurring right now. Can you say that one again? Crown of thorns, starfish. Starfish. So they're a, they can get pretty big. It's a starfish that has, I think they can have up to like 26 arms and they're covered in thorns. So they look pretty nasty. Um, And what they'll actually do is eat the live coral tissue. So in low numbers, they're actually beneficial for a reef, but in high numbers, they'll cause an outbreak and they'll just decimate the entire reef. So when we have outbreaks, it can be really bad. Hmm, Okay. So that's a threat. Yeah. Yeah. And, And what's causing these outbreaks? Is it a change in water temperature? Water quality actually is kind of hand in hand with those, with those outbreaks. So if you have a, a decrease in water quality that can cause them to spawn and there actually there was there's been a lot of debate I don't know debate but there's been a lot of work going into how to actually control their numbers because in a lot of places they were actually just spearing them with a pole and putting them into bags um, and they found out that that could actually have been triggering them to spawn which could have been causing further outbreaks so now the method that they use right now is you can either inject them with vinegar or I think it's bio salts, um, and that will slowly break it down. The vinegar breaks them down within about 48 hours. So there's, um, I believe, Grumpa has five vessels that will go out and kind of monitor their numbers, and they'll go to areas that have had outbreaks, and they'll uh, they'll try to monitor the numbers that are there and, and reduce them if they're at bad levels. Okay, so climate change is the main one. And then you mentioned this species of starfish. And you said arms, so the arms, not legs. Oh, no, no. Yeah, arms, not legs. Is that? Yeah. yeah okay, okay. <laughs> off topic kind of question. But when you said arms, it's like, okay, why arms and not legs? But off topic. Okay. So reefs, we're obviously on the same page that they need to be saved and protected. But why are coral reefs important in the first place? What role do they play in the ecosystem and how do they affect human society? So the Great Barrier Reef actually provides about 64,000 jobs. So really important in terms of jobs. They're really important as well for coastal protection. So they'll absorb, um, if you've got like, you know, a lot of waves hitting, hitting the coastline, they'll absorb a lot of that energy and not much will actually reach the shore. 
there's a lot of medicine that's also being derived from animals on coral reefs, um, so kind of things like cone snails, I guess you could say, and oceans in, in particular are producing up to 80% of the air that we breathe, so reefs are important in terms of that. Uh, and they're also a food source, so a lot of communities will rely on the animals that are living on coral reefs as as food, so fish and those sorts of things. And in terms of the you know the animals that live in these coral reefs, obviously without them and if they're unhealthy, then that will in turn affect the, the animals that depend on it as well. Yeah, exactly. Which so are a lot of like- species, right? <laughs> Yeah, you've got like food webs or food chains. So I guess an example that we look at pretty frequently is sharks. If you're to take an apex predator like sharks out of the ecosystem, you're going to result, uh, it's going to result in an imbalance. So you've got like your producers, your consumers, you're just going to mess up the whole order of things and that can be uh, that can be really bad as well. Yeah, that's one thing that I think is important to educate people on is and i'm still you know i don't have a science background so this is something i'm learning about every day as well but this idea of you know these ecosystems and these food chains or food webs how intricate that balance is you Mm. know that that state of equilibrium is as delicate as the spider's web almost so you know slight touch of that spider web just ripples through everything And that, I think, for many people, they don't really understand how intricate that balance is and how important it is to be balanced. Yeah. And, yeah, like, again, sharks are a really big big part of that. And um, so when you look at, like, illegal fishing practices and shark fishing, shark nets, baited hooks, it's all detrimental to it. Like, we should, in reality, we should probably just leave it as it is. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, probably yeah. <laughs> for, for most cases. Um, okay, so what, in your opinion, are the main roadblocks that need to be addressed to ensure the health of the Great Barrier Reef over the long term? Again, climate change. So it is just the single biggest threat to the Great Barrier Reef currently. We need to be doing more. Um, there need to be more policies put in place. We need to... I think individuals, at an individual level, we need to be doing everything we can to try and reduce the effects of climate change, which, you know, is difficult. But you, for example, you can do things like, um, and some people don't like this this option, but you can try and eat less meat, eat more vegetables. You can reduce your energy consumption, walk, not drive, all this sort of stuff. I feel like we tell people this constantly. People know what they can do to help reduce the impacts it's just a case of them actually implementing those things and, and starting to do them so there's <laughs> there's obviously individual changes that we can make so you mentioned yeah. diet um we can also you know that you've got these carbon footprint calculators so we can hop on google yeah. or whatever and, and kind of do our own personal research to see how how what changes that we can personally make to reduce our impact but at a greater level we do need some kind of policy some some systematic changes and the question then becomes how do we inform those changes i do know in terms of the reef this year we've actually seen a really big boost in funding so grumpa relies a lot on i suppose grumpa and other other um, organizations rely a lot on on funding Um, so there's been a lot of grants that have been given out this year specifically targeting the management of the marine park and um, you know conservation within the park so that's been really good 
Still, I think we do need to focus a lot more on climate change, though. And it's um, I that is exactly how I would describe it is it's a roadblock. I can't even convince half the people that I speak to that it's actually happening. So that's step that's, one. That, well, that's a massive roadblock, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. And that that's kind of a larger issue is is the fact that many people don't believe in it. These are scientific facts and they have been so for many, many years. And what is it in the psychology of people that they <laughs> – like not in in a in a kind of pointing fingers kind of way, but that's very interesting. This is kind of like a core. What's their rationale for not believing it? Is it in, inconvenience? Is it like a? Is it fear? I think, it, I, I think it's a belief that the the world is the world. How could we possibly be changing the climate? I spoke to my mum and dad, and my dad said, "Yep, it's happening. Climate change. Yep." And my mum goes, "I'm skeptical." <laughs> and I said, you can't be skeptical. You can't be skeptical. It's it's a proven scientific fact. Like climate change is happening. Why don't you believe it? And I think it is for a lot of people. It's just it's just too hard to believe that us little humans could actually be causing all these huge changes in the climate, changes in climatic weather events, air quality, mm. um, water temperatures, all those sorts of things. Hmm. But yeah, that's definitely a big roadblock. Convince, convincing people that this is an issue and then once we are all convinced then we it's a tough one isn't it it's a tough oh, one it is. i think that's why it's it's taking so long to um to build up some momentum behind it and you know mm. getting more and more things happening it's happening though you know like, oh no doubt <laughs> there's more and more happening and i think yeah that's great we'll get there eventually <laughs> yeah and momentum is an important one and and that comes back to social media in terms of communication, that's where we communicate predominantly is is on social media. So creating these conversations, creating content around these issues, and then you know people share it, people engage with it, and that's how you develop this momentum. And that's how, in my opinion, you get these changes of opinions. That's how it's, it starts is through these conversations on social media. Yeah. Okay, we talked about some of the the animals. So the the reef is home to many many animals, including <laughs> turtles. And turtles are you've got a lot of turtles on your Instagram page. Yes, I do. <laughs> what are some things that you've learnt about sea turtles uh, since working as a marine biologist in you know, Lady Elliot Island and the Southern Great Barrier Reef as a whole? I've learned that amazing animals that's for sure mm -hmm. um, i've learned they're all pretty unique in terms of their nesting uh i have noticed that they are very very picky so with the nesting turtles uh when they're coming up onto shore to lay their nests that is their only parental care so for example over the course of about a month we had around 300 tracks up and down the beach and mm. of those 300 tracks we had 19 confirmed nests. So hmm. they're very picky. <laughs> so tracks, like as in they are kind of moving up and down the beach trying to find the right spot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. I always just thought that they just came came up on the beach, you know, made their little hole <laughs> and did their thing, but that's not the case. They're very picky. So there's there's basically three stages to when they're doing it. They'll, they'll come up and they'll body pit and they'll clear away all the big chunks of coral, roots, vegetation. If they're happy with the body pit, they'll make an egg chamber. 
which is just like a big pear-shaped hole down into the ground. If they're happy with the egg chamber, then they'll lay their eggs. Um, but we have, we've got a few big areas that have a lot of coral um, up in the sand, so our turtles will make sure that they're picking usually the best spots with, um, you know, small granulated sand so it's easiest to nest in. So the, the picky, quite picky on finding a, a nesting spot that they're happy with. But what are those variables that determine whether they're happy with it? Is it like a temperature thing? Is it kind of um, sheltered somewhat? Like, do you know of what the variables are that they're like, okay, this is the spot where I should lay my eggs? <laughs> as far as I've seen, they're going to prefer an area that doesn't have lots of coral in it, doesn't have any tree roots through the nest, um, doesn't have much grass or vegetation on top. But in saying all of that, um, once a turtle has fertilised its eggs, it's only got about seven days to lay them. So I'm sure they get to the point where they just want to lay them and they won't pick the perfect area. Mm -hmm. um, we get greens and loggerheads nesting on the island and we see that the, the greens are a lot more picky with where they'll select and a lot of the time the loggerheads will just come up and um, – Go for it. Just, just do it. They're less, they're less picky, the loggerheads. We had a loggerhead <laughs> last year nest, I think it was about 3 p.m., halfway down the beach. So the next tide would have covered the nest. And then we had the same thing happen this year, I believe. I wasn't there for it. But the loggerheads sometimes will be a bit more rushed and will just kind of, you know, pick wherever they, they mm -hmm. want. So there's no, like, hard and fast rule. With, with turtles, they just kind of do whatever they like. Do their as thing. As far as I Okay. So we touched on it before, the social media aspect. In your opinion, how, how important do you think social media is for inspiring positive change for the Great Barrier Reef and conservation in general? It's, I think it's pretty important. Um, I think it's a really good way to reach out to people that otherwise wouldn't have the chance to experience the reef um so it's you know another way that they can see it and learn about it and that's definitely one thing i try to do with my videos is is educate people about what they're they're looking at and you've got like you know a lot of a lot of accounts out there that are doing a fantastic job about about showing people the reef and and telling them you know facts about all these amazing animals so yeah i i've been pretty fortunate with social media and yeah, I just, honestly, I just get out there and I try and film everything I can. And yeah, it's just, it's lucky that people are, are interested in what I'm, what I'm filming. So how do you use it? Do you consciously use it as like a, as a tool to complement your work as a marine biologist? Like you mentioned, yeah. you use it to kind of educate, like you have the videos and then you have the captions. So you, you intentionally try and use it as a tool. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. So, you know, day to day I'm I'm there educating people firsthand and then I can I can go home and I can, you know, spread the word on social media and I can get people to learn about about marine life, about the reef, um, through Instagram as well. So mm -hmm. it works well. I'm constantly educating people, I suppose. Yes, yeah, an educator. <laughs> That's, that's why um, social media, in my eyes, you've, you know, it's all about providing value. And to me, it's entertainment and education are the two main ones, but sometimes you can combine the two. And so if you, like with the work that you do and the content that you create, you know, you, you do kind of balance those two, the entertaining videos, but also they have this educational um, factor to it as well, which I think 
is quite powerful when you're when your content combines those two areas being entertainment and education um so do you have any first question actually before i get to that part when <laughs> sorry <laughs> when did you kind of commit fully to posting these videos because i remember like it's quite a rapid rise hasn't it like i remember yeah. following you a little while back and you had like maybe a couple of thousand followers so how long ago did you kind of commit to like okay i'm going to start posting more of these uh, and when and do you have any tips for any kind of people specifically in this conservation space or biology wildlife scientist space what tips do you have for them who who want to also harness social media as a tool so for me living out on the island we've got pretty limited reception um so it's kind of I don't have like a, a schedule or anything it's just I kind of post when I'm able to when I've got spare time mm -hmm. and that that works totally fine so I don't I to be fair I wouldn't say I've put a huge deal of thought into my account or into my content usually I'll just go and ask some of my friends I'll show them one video I'll say what do you think of this do you think <laughs> it's any good and I just go off of that so uh, that's worked pretty well for me so far yeah um in terms of tips um i don't know i just i tend to tag tag big accounts that doesn't always pay off but um i i do that mm -hmm. lots of hashtags about the ocean yeah um and i find that people love turtles turtles you could honestly just have an account just post turtles all day and people would be obsessed people love turtles mm -hmm. and so do i so it works well for me <laughs> yeah turtles are one of those animals everyone loves turtles yeah and for good reason yeah turtles whales actually people a lot of people love underwater like marine animals like generally yeah. when you compare that's one thing i've noticed is is um yeah marine animals seem to be quite popular compared mm. to their land counterparts yeah <laughs> what camera do you use because your videos are so crisp yeah surprisingly i think it's just i've learnt how to film well with it. I either use just a GoPro or I've got an old Sony camera and a big Nordicam housing. So I think it's just about being smooth when you're filming and just going slowly and um and yeah. So most of your videos come from a GoPro. Yeah. And like a little extension rod thing. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it's worked pretty well for me. <laughs> yeah, because that's one thing I wondered. I was like, I wonder what she uses because mm -hmm. they are you know quite sharp and i was like i wonder if yeah. there's like a you know a, a fancy camera but it's, it's just a, a gopro and just making sure that you're in the right spot and it's nice and steady yeah mainly yeah mm. so i think that's really cool is this idea that a it's a gopro so you don't have to break the bank necessarily to mm -hmm. to get started and b you don't need to be on a strict schedule like you can just post whenever you can yeah. <laughs> use a few hashtags and i guess if the content is good then yeah. you will do well so i think that's important for people you know scientists to be aware of is it doesn't have to be a planet earth david annabrough style quality <laughs> content like it doesn't have to be the best I'd like to get to that point at some stage, though. <laughs> oh, that's that's a that's a so, goal of yours. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, eventually, I'm looking into getting like a, a bigger, better camera. But yeah, as you're saying, a, a GoPro does suffice. Do you mm. want to talk a little bit about what are your your I guess goals? Oh, I haven't thought about this yet. 
Still, still work <laughs> um, in progress. I, I do have a weird one. I would like to swim with our pink manta ray. Yeah, I, I read about that. But I, yeah. I, have you taken a video of that? Because I don't. No, I, I haven't. Know. I haven't had a chance to, to snorkel with it yet. And everyone, well, I wouldn't say everyone, but quite a few other people that work on the island did. And yeah. I was in the water with it, probably about 10 meters away, and I didn't realize it was there. So, because uh, yeah. pink on the underside, um, obviously. It is, yeah. So, the really unique thing about that one is um, you do have a few different color morphs with the manta rays, but the other morphs are either black all over or white all over. And with this morph, it's pink on the underside, but it's the regular chevron morph on top. So, you have to be really kind of looking to identify that it is the pink one is there any physical attributes that you can kind of tell that it's the pink one from looking from looking down yeah its tail, its tail has a bit of a kink in it okay uh, and it's a male so its claspers are pink so okay. if you were looking if you're looking closely you would be able to tell um we're nearing the end of the podcast are there any topics that you'd like to talk about that we haven't touched on Coral bleaching, actually. Okay. Coral bleaching. Yeah. Let's talk about coral bleaching. Yeah. Um, so that's probably one of the biggest questions we get asked um, on a day-to-day basis is, has the reef here bleached? Um, what is the current condition of the reef, as we've already talked about? Um, but there is, and this actually this is something I've copped a lot online, the number of comments I've had from people saying, oh, that reef is bleached. Look at all that bleached coral and the word, the word is just everywhere and people don't actually have a full understanding of what it is. Okay. So I don't know if you've seen my video. There's a video of a little turtle hatchling. Uh, it's just run down the beach and it's swimming up to the surface and underneath it there's lots of coral. Um, so Lady Elliot is a coral cave, so it's made of coral. It's 3,000 years old. It's just made of coral that's died and just stacked up on top of each other. The island itself. Hey. The island itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. So a lot of people saw that that footage and thought, oh, my gosh, that all that coral's bleached. It's all dead. That's so unhealthy. Why are you posting a video of this? When, in fact, you can basically compare it to sand on a beach. That is the structure of the island. And a lot of my turtle videos that I've posted of our lagoon, because it's a tidal lagoon, the coral will grow to a certain height. And then due to exposure at low tide, it won't keep growing. It will, it will just cut off at a particular level. And people saw that and they thought, oh, that's all dead as well. Why are you posting all this dead coral? Um, so coral bleaching occurs when you have a change in the environmental conditions. So coral is very picky. Um, it doesn't like water that's too salty, too hot, too cold, a lot of different things. So, for example, if the water heats up too much, that can cause the coral to bleach. And what that involves is the algae living inside the coral will be expelled. And that algae is responsible for most of the food that the coral needs. So when it's pushed out, the coral is basically starving and it turns white. So that's bleaching. But the coral isn't actually dead. It's sick. And it needs that coral to be sorry. It needs that algae to come back into its into its tissue, but it's not actually dead. So people will see that white coral and they'll think it's all a dead coral reef. In fact, it's not. So if if the environmental conditions return to pre-bleaching conditions, the algae can come back into the coral and it can live again. So 
People think that bleached coral 100% means dead coral and it it actually doesn't. So that's one thing that I would love to to clarify to people. Yeah, and I think the term term is just getting thrown around a lot now. So it's important to understand that it doesn't necessarily mean dead coral. It's Mm -hmm. coral that can can recover. Yeah, so the... The bleaching, so when a coral is bleaching or has bleached or whatever, it's gone that color or colorless, that's a sign that the algae has left. Yeah. Okay, so and the algae leaves when there is a change in the temperature or, or a change in the quality of the water, if it's too salty yeah. or whatever. So the algae leaves. Yeah. And so when algae leaves, the coral changes, that goes that, that white color. If the algae is no longer there and that algae is integral to its energy consumption, how long can that coral stay in that state before it does die? It varies. It varies for all different coral species, formations, reefs. I'd say maybe a few weeks, but it varies a lot. Yeah. So if, if the conditions don't return to normal, that's when the coral will die. If it doesn't get that zooxanthellae back, um, it's it's probably going to die. If it does get the zooxanthellae back, it can recover. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I did want to touch on is all the work going into um, coral regeneration or reef restoration. I don't know if you saw, but I was really lucky to see the coral spawning this year. Yeah, I saw that. Which is so exciting, yeah. So we were just like running around in the lagoon with lights. Um, that was so and- cool. Trying to trying to film, you know, these little egg and sperm bundles coming out into the water. And in a lot of places, what they're doing is they're actually starting to collect that coral spawn and then kind of um, grow it in tanks. And then there's something called a larval restoration bot, which I saw, which is really cool. And it will actually distribute the coral polyps onto reefs that have had damage. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to restore these damaged reefs, and it seems to be working quite well. I like yeah. that. I like that. Yeah, it's cool. Okay, well, thank you for your for your time. That was really good. Um, yeah. How can people connect with you? They can message me probably on Instagram or email me or whatever they like. I read. I read pretty much like all my comments and messages and everything. So. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so Instagram's your main one, obviously. Yeah, I don't. In terms of Facebook, Minimal. don't really use it at all. So yeah, mm-hmm. Instagram. And Jacinta Shackleton. All right, well, I'll add all that info in the bio and the captions and the show notes and wherever else I pop this so they can connect with you there. And I highly recommend it, whoever's listening. She's got some <laughs> awesome content. All right, last question is, what message or question do you want to leave the listeners of the Conservation Tribe? I want to tell you that the reef is alive and in a lot of areas it's thriving and that I really, really encourage everyone to come out and visit it and see it firsthand because I'm sure you'll fall in love just like I am. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.